every minute of the day, on average, 20 people are displaced from their homes, forced to flee because of war, community violence or persecution. Those numbers add up quickly. Right now, there are more than 65 million displaced people around the world. The UN says that's an unprecedented surge of refugees and internally displaced people. If ever there was a time for people of goodwill to get together to find solutions, it's now. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. In the March edition of Signs of the Times magazine, we get a very vivid impression of what it's like to visit a Rohingya refugee camp just inside the border of Bangladesh. To explore this further, I caught up with aid worker Robert Patton on the phone. He works with ADRA, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, particularly in the area of emergency management. I was last in Bangladesh about 10 days ago and uh, went out to uh, a couple of the camps that uh, ADRA is working in. And this particular camp is literally right on the border. It's within probably one kilometre of the river that defines the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. I was involved with the Rohingya uh, refugees in Bangladesh um, in two uh, roles. One was uh, the, as the emergency response coordinator on the ground uh, in Bangladesh uh, towards the beginning of our response there. And then when I've not been uh, filling that role, I've been uh, working as the regional emergency coordinator to ensure that we have coordination of address global resources for the support of the response to the needs of the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Under the coordination uh, that's being done in uh, Bangladesh uh, with regard to the response to the uh, Rohingya refugee crisis, uh, ADRA has some specific roles that have been allocated uh, to them. One of the biggest roles is that there are two um, refugee camps where in total there is uh, 12,000 households. Uh, there's about five um, persons per household, so that's 60,000 people. Yeah. ADRA is actually managing the camp where they liaise with the organisations that are working there and coordinate within that camp the aid with the government, the aid with the uh, UN services as well. And then within those camps, ADRA is providing specifically emergency shelter. Yeah. Um, this is a bamboo framework with tarpaulin over it. And uh, in the next uh, three months, ADRA is specifically uh, providing 10,000 of those. Wow. Uh, there's also um, coming up a, um, a cyclone and monsoon season, so ADRA is working hard to strengthen uh, other buildings or other uh, shelters as well uh, against the uh, rains and cyclones that could come. Uh, ADRA is also doing what we call site improvements within those camps. Uh, this is putting in pathways, roadways, building bridges, uh, putting fences in to uh, protect uh, around water uh, sources, um, and putting drainage canals in. There's also uh, what we call risk reduction that is being done, and so uh, address working uh, within those camps for evacuation routes, uh, how uh, they will manage if a fire broke out. I think you can imagine uh, what it would be like with all this closely packed in, you know, tents or mm. essentially, you know, temporary shelters and all the cooking is done over fire. So 
there is a high risk there. So we're working with the communities to look at uh, how we can actually reduce the risk and then if that time does happen, how we can actually uh, manage that as well. So this is giving a little bit of an insight into some of the things that Adra is doing in those camps, uh, especially two specific camps with the total population of 60,000 people who are taking on a very, very strong role of managing those camps for those people to provide the best services possible for them. Boy, it it just makes you realise, you know, how much we take for granted that you know, that we have all this basic infrastructure, you know, provided in our communities. But if, if you're living, you know, basically out, out in the bush somewhere, out, out in a, a paddock somewhere, then all these basics have to be provided somewhere, so, you know, somehow. That's right. I mean, you, you look at, you know, a basic essential of life is water. Um, you do not have, you know, piped water to every dwelling. You've got sand pipes, basically, and people are queuing every day with their containers to collect some water to take back to their home. Uh, you've then got to look at the facility of bathrooms and, uh, you know, waste from that. Um, and when you look at those sheer numbers again, there was nothing there basically, you know, six months ago. Suddenly you have to create those, you know, services for a million people essentially. Yeah, and, and then when you add the, like you said, the risk of floods to that, you, um, you know, open latrines plus floods, um, you're basically looking at, well, there goes your clean water, aren't you, really? Essentially, that's it. And so uh, we're looking at putting bore wells, and I mean, that's kind of what we're doing to uh, you know, tap into deep sources of uh, water and then protecting those bore wells uh, to ensure that they're not contaminated in any way. Now, let's just, just backtrack a little bit because I guess, you know, we hear about the Rohingya issue, you know, on the news and things like that, and sometimes it's just assumed that we all know what it's about, but I guess the roots of it go go back quite quite a while. Um, why are Rohingya people running from Myanmar? Like what's, what's going on for them there? Uh, essentially, there's been a change in the security situation for them, and uh, essentially they are leaving the country to protect themselves and their family. And this has been happening over the last probably 25 years, but this has been the largest uh, uh, exodus, and it's really just to do with the uh, scale and enormity uh, of the um, security situation within Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Sure, okay. So I guess there's been a, a significant change of, of government in Myanmar, but it seems that no matter what the government lately, there is always seems to be an issue with um, ethnic and religious minorities in, in Myanmar. Um, and I know it's difficult for you to comment on that because ADRA, of course, you know, works with, you know, governments of, of all stripes, um, you know, needing to focus on, on the needs of people rather than taking a, a political stand. That that must be difficult on some occasions. Uh, it is, but the uh, core approach of uh, ADRA is that we... Uh, apply the humanitarian uh, principles, uh, which basically is that people who uh, are in need um, and who are uh, refugees, there are, uh, there's what we call the humanitarian imperative, which is that they have the right to assistance. Uh, there's also neutrality, which is where ADRA as an organisation, which is the uh, humanitarian arm of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, mm-hmm. that we take a neutral approach. It does not uh, take into account uh, politics, uh, religious uh, aspects or any uh, racial components there at all. ADRA will just help anyone, uh, basically, and will not take any sides at all. And there's the uh, impartiality, which is 
if anyone's in need, we provide it to those who are in the greatest need. Okay, so this would explain why you know, the Rohingya, for example, are, are a, a Muslim minority group, and Adra, obviously, as, as you said, is an arm of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but regardless of the religious differences, um, you, you guys are blind to that. You're there to help. That, that's correct. I mean, it comes down to that basic humanitarian principle. They're a human being. They're in need, and we will be there to assist and support them uh, as, as required. Okay, fair enough. Um now, we hear these terrible stories from not just Bangladesh, but around the world about refugees being stuck in refugee camps for five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, generations. What, what is going on with that? Where, well, can you explain to us how the system is supposed to work and what the bottlenecks are in that system that leave people in limbo in those sort of situations for so long? Essentially, for someone to become a refugee, they need to uh, cross a border into another country. And primarily, uh, it's usually because they are seeking safety, security for themselves and for their family as well. Once they enter that country, uh, in most instances, they are essentially illegally entering that country. But uh, those countries that they enter... Uh, they're a signatory to a code of conduct under the United Nations uh, where they actually will agree to protect those people uh, based on the premise that it is not safe for them to go back where they came from and so they will then continue to at least provide them a safe environment uh, within the country that they have uh, gone to until the situation either resolves uh, in the country that they left or they maybe make a move to another country that accepts them as a refugee but brings them in and then adopts them, if you like, or takes them on as citizens of, uh, their, of the new country. That, that's what we call resettlement, isn't it? It, it is indeed, yes. Okay. So while there are a lot of countries in the world where there are refugees living in, in refugee camps, there are only a a handful of countries, aren't there, like including places like you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, where refugees are actually permanently settled uh, with the aim of becoming new citizens in, in those countries. It, is the fact that there are so few countries offering resettlement one reason why people wait so long in these camps? It is the limited number of people that are, you know, limited countries that are uh, providing that uh, resettlement program. But it's uh, also that there are limitations on the numbers that those uh, countries accept. And so Australia, for example, will have a uh, target maximum number. New Zealand, Canada, uh, the same, where there will be a, uh, a maximum number that they will take in any one year. The other thing that uh, slows the process down somewhat is the fact that there has to be uh, proof, if you like, that they are indeed a true refugee, that there is... Uh, they cannot go back to their country of origin uh, because of safety concerns and fear for their life, basically. And that has to be clearly shown so that uh, a country that then takes them for resettlement is confident that uh, this is meeting a very real need for them. Okay. Um, so the situation of the Rohingya in particular, um, are they? What is it about their situation that, like having been there quite recently, as as you said, what do you see about their situation that is perhaps you know quite unique to what we might see elsewhere in the world, or or is it simply the another variety of the same thing we we see anywhere? What could be seen as unique? It's not only just the Rohingya, but it's uh, they are sort of 
it's a unique to them. The fact that they do not hold citizenship or do not have citizenship in any country. Uh, Myanmar, where they came from, did not recognise them, and of course they are not recognised uh, within Bangladesh uh, because they have no citizenship. Uh, they've been termed by the UN as uh, the most friendless people in the world. There are no friends for them. They have no citizenship. They have no rights anywhere in any country. And that makes a unique situation for them. Wow. So are they receiving a, a unique response then from the United Nations or, or from countries that do provide resettlement service, uh, services? Or are they stuck in limbo in, in that sense as well? Uh, the UN will be working and advocates that we need to look at uh, you know, how can they get citizenship. This is a, a complicated uh, you know, situation and one that's I think to be resolved quickly and especially when you look at the you know, sheer numbers uh, of the Rohingya that are uh, currently uh, seeking refuge uh, within Bangladesh. What kind of numbers are we looking at? Um, there were already somewhere in the region of about 200,000 that uh, were it, been living for some period of time within Bangladesh and since the latest flow of people started, which was in late August uh, last year, uh, there's been about 100, uh, sorry, 850,000 more, so that takes it to just over a million Rohingya that are now in Bangladesh. Goodness me, so that's like the population of Adelaide, isn't it, really? It, it is, and when you think the majority of those arrived in the space of about a four-month period, and they came with nothing. Uh, they arrived with literally just the clothes on their back, and that was it. And so there has to be a response that uh, meets the basic human needs, which is emergency shelter, food, and water. Of course, there's a lot more than that. There's then also uh, you know, education that you need to look at. Uh, you need to look at the health services for those people. And then there's to be some form of psychosocial support for them as well. Because they've been through a very traumatic time. Sure. And I guess uh, ADRA is one of those organisations that's helping to provide that, that suite of services? Yes. Uh, ADRA is providing a specific group of services, if you like, uh, for them and in specific locations. The actual response is well managed and coordinated by UN agency, uh, the UNHCR. And so there's, um, it, it avoids duplication and avoids also gaps in the services. And so ADRA's working within that uh, coordination. Okay, and, and does it work well, like having the, the UN and I imagine some uh, government agencies in, in Bangladesh and a whole lot of NGOs such as yourself all, all working together? Is, is that a, a difficult sort of thing to coordinate it? I believe that it works well, and one of the main reasons is that the system that we're using is actually a global response mechanism that's used elsewhere, and it's not new to uh, any aid organisation that's working in the area. And so everyone does tend to work together, follow what is you know, an established way of approaching this for coordination, and there's very, very good communication between the agencies and then with uh, feeding that into uh, the overall coordination. And generally speaking, it works extremely well, and it is working well in the case of the response uh, to meet the needs of the Rohingya refugees. Wow, that's, that's really, really good to hear. Um, and I understand ADRA is also working with refugees in, in other parts of the world, um, Syria and Iraq. Um, what, what about Africa, like around the, the Congo and places like that where there's been a, a refugee issues for decades now? Yes, uh, ADRA is certainly working in those uh, areas. 
uh, in actual fact, ADRA over the last three years has altogether worked with refugees and IDPs, and just to differentiate with the IDPs, which is internally displaced persons, mm-hmm. are people who have had to flee within their own country, have been displaced within in their own country, and have not crossed a border into another country, which is what then defines a refugee. So ADRA has been working with both internally displaced and people who have crossed borders in 39 countries over the last three years. Wow, 39. That's yeah. That that must be that must mean that ADRA is basically working with the majority of the places in the world where there is a, a significant refugee issue right now. That, that's correct. And it's a range of services from you know the immediate needs of people who have just. Uh, you know, left where they are and are in immediate need, through to programs and then resettle them either into uh, a new uh, country for them or resettling them back into uh, the country that they've uh, come from. But working with that group of people who have been displaced here in 39 countries in total. Okay, so ADRA also helps people with resettlement in, in like you say, either new countries where they end up or or returning back to their original country once the uh, you know wars or, or other or famines or other issues have, have died down. Yes, most definitely. And uh, in Australia, uh, Adra actually has a re- uh, sort of resettlement program there in Melbourne. Uh, this is with uh, Sudanese refugees who have been resettled into Australia, and so Adra has a specific program there uh, where they're working with the youth to assist them to integrate into society there. Uh, and there are actually details on that program on ADRA Australia's website. Okay, which is adra.org.au, if I've got that right? That's correct, yes. Okay. Now, over the last probably 10 or 15 years, uh, Robert, we've seen a a sort of hardening in attitude towards refugees, I I guess, as the numbers of them have have increased in in some parts of the world. There seems to be a fair degree of prejudice. Um, so I guess ADRA uh, personnel, you know, w- working closely with those refugees, um, obviously you, you're going to see the good, the bad and the, and the ugly in, in that sense. You're, you're going to sort of understand the system a bit better. What, what's your sense of how ADRA workers come away from those experiences feeling about the refugee issue and, and about the refugees they, they come across? to any actual worker to you know, work in those environments. And I guess that's mitigated to some extent by the fact that you've actually been working to assist and help those people. Um, but it is challenging to see what in all instances are innocent people who, due to means beyond their, you know, reason beyond their control, have been forced to leave you know, their home where they've been living. Uh, it separates families separate friends, uh, support networks have gone, and so it is challenging to work in those environments, but uh, ADRA has very strong programs that you know come together to ensure that those uh, needs of people are met. And essentially, you know, a refugee, they're a human being the same as any of us, and what we're looking at is, you know, a place of safety, a place of security, somewhere where you've got a future, and that's what ADRA's trying to do is, you know, create that sort of environment along with other organisations as well. Mm. So you personally, Robert, when you confront, um, you know, a, a large refugee camp, 
um, you know, just sort of that seems to be everywhere you look or or when you sit down with people and you hear their, their heart-rending stories about, you know, family members killed in front of them, um, the you know, what they've had to go through in, in leaving uh, their home and everything they, they have behind, you know, crossing borders, um, you know, braving all sorts of dangers and, and traumas. How, how do you cope? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, it is, first of all, understanding and knowing about the environment and uh, what has caused it. And in that way, through that understanding, uh, you can better... I guess apply yourself. Um, it is. Uh, I've got to be careful that I don't become uh, immune to it. I, I, you know, as humanitarian aid workers, we need to always have that uh, empathy within us to be able to assist. There are ways that you know, for me personally, that I do manage that. Yes, I'm working hard, long hours. I have to take a bit of time of you know recreation also within that for myself. Sure. Um, staying connected to my family at home is a great way of doing things as well. We can talk through things. It's also being part of a team and we support each other. Uh, we get to know each other and we work together. And so that also helps to alleviate those sort of stresses that you face when you're working in an environment like that. It's important to, you know, think of what I said earlier about some form of recreation. You've got to get your rest before you need to have your breaks. So we always work within the ADRA to ensure that our staff are, you know, have a balance somewhat. They're working very long days, multiple sort of days uh, at a stretch. But we do our best to ensure that there is support for them to get a break as well. Great. Well, yeah, look, that that must be tough, but it's good to hear that, you know, there's a, a high level of, of awareness amongst, you know, aid workers with, with ADRA that you're, you're there to support one another, you're there to debrief with one another and um, keep an eye out for, for each other and say, hey, you know, maybe it's it's time you, you took a break for a while or, you know, how, how long since you, you had a, a couple of weeks home with your family. Wow, in, incredible stuff. Um, I really appreciate you, you sharing this with us, Robert. Um, yeah, where, where are you off to next? From here... Be heading uh, to Thailand. Uh, the primary purpose of that uh, visit in Bangkok uh, is to meet with regional agencies. Uh, for instance, I've been meeting with a number of UN agencies, a number of uh, donor uh, offices, and this is really at the regional level to ensure that we maintain a good relationship with them. We look at opportunities of how we can actually work together in partnership. And uh, so it's sort of at a higher level than at the country office level for uh, a lot of these agencies. Okay, fair enough. Now, obviously, you're sort of in the field and, uh, you know, doing training and, and this sort of thing. So um, I don't know how aware you are of the, the donations and, and marketing side of things, but what's your understanding as to how ADRA is supported in terms of, of its finances? I'll be honest with you, I don't know a lot about sort of you know, uh, the, the uh, streams of income, shall we say. Sure. Uh, but what I can tell you is there are generous people out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, ADRA is able to continue to work, but there's never enough. You know, there's always a greater need. And so, you know, I do encourage people to provide support for the work that ADRA is doing because it is, as we've identified, with just the sheer number of countries that ADRA is working in with refugees alone gives an idea of the resources that are required by ADRA to be able to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess obviously there are, you know, governments out there who are providing, you know, grants to provide particular projects here and there. But um, I mean, my understanding, you know, as I've had contact with ADRA people is that, yes, um, while the grants are there, the, the donations from the public are, are really essential and, and hugely appreciated. Uh, right now, for example, um, ADRA Australia is uh, running a, a special appeal aimed at the Rohingya issue where you can help out um, as our listeners to, uh, to provide food and uh, shelter kits and um, other em- emergency and everyday supplies that they basically don't have there uh, to help those those refugees there in in the um, refugee camps in Bangladesh. The website to check out to find out more about that and to make your donation is adra.org.au slash Rohingya, which is spelled R-O-H-I-N-G-Y-A. You can also call one 800 242372 uh, to make your donation. That number again, 1-800-242-372. And I'm sure Adrian would really appreciate your support. So yeah, thanks again uh, so much, Robert, for the uh, for the time that you've spent with us today and all the best with your work. And um, yeah, God bless as you um, make a difference in the world. Thank you. And look, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share a little bit about what Adrian is doing. And uh, I do ask for, you know, the prayers of people that's extremely important. And I also think it's important that people inform themselves about what has happened in this world. Because there may be, you know, some way that they can assist. Uh, and of course, you know, there is the donations that have to be made to Natron. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 